volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost Box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. Here we go. From the studios of Fox 5 News in Washington, D.C., this is the On the Hill podcast. Tom Fitzgerald here with you today. Uh, David Adesnik is the uh, director of research uh, for the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is an expert in Iran, uh, very knowledgeable about that part of the world and uh, Syria as well. And we are happy to welcome him here in on the On the Hill podcast. David, how are you? Great. Great to be on the Hill. Well, uh, we wanted to have you here not only because of the anniversary we're looking at, but also what we're looking at in the here and now in 2019 with sure. our relationship where we are with Iran and it continues to be a, a hot button issue. Um, so it's 40 years right now. This is the anniversary of the Islamic revolution. Now, those of us of a certain age remember that quite clearly. And, you know, the Ayatollah Khomeini had been in Paris for a number of years and the Shah of Iran was, you know, uh, held on to power in Iran, supported by the U.S. government. But if you can reset for folks, what was our relationship with Iran like before 1979, before we were, you know, odds with each other? Because we at one point had Iran as a very close ally. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. And of course, you have to wind back to the Cold War, appreciate that Iran was on the southern border of the Soviet Union before it lost all of its Central Asian territories. And of course, that meant we had some valuable listening stations so that it was an intelligence asset to be partners with the Shah of Iran. Uh, of course, there were also hesitations because he was uh, an increasingly autocratic and uh, brutal ruler. His security services, the Savak, uh, committed quite a lot of abuses, which is one of the reasons you had so much of a, a desire to remove him among the people. Now, the people didn't necessarily want exactly what came out in the end, which was a radical uh, Shiite Islamic state, mm -hmm. but uh, there was definitely deep dissatisfaction. But that is, in fact, what wound up happening. So the revolution takes place in February of 1979. Khomeini returns to Iran. Was in an immediate flip over of like turning on a light switch or did it take time to go from what in many ways was a westernized Iran to what we now know now as an Islamic state. How, what was that process? Sure. Well, it didn't become uh, a state dominated by the Khomeini and his followers immediately. There was a number of groups that were parties to this revolution. There was also a strong communist Marxist component. Uh, there were a number of others who we might have had more aspirations to even moved Iran in a democratic direction. I mean, one of the greatest problems was the misperception of Ayatollah Khomeini as someone who was sort of a nonviolent figure, someone who was responsive to the desires of the people rather than to an extremist ideology. So you had something that were, might be like coalition governments for a while, and over time, uh, what you know became the leadership of the regime today managed to purge its opponents and consolidate total power. In the 19, late 1970s, um, was... Khomeini viewed as somebody that the U.S. considered doing business with at some point? I mean, it was pretty plain that the Shah was wildly unpopular in his own country, but yet the U.S. continued to back him even as this force of the Ayatollah continued to rise. 
yeah, I mean, I think there were some people, definitely some of uh, President Carter's senior advisors thought it was possible. But his more, uh, you know, hardline character, violent character came out over time and made it seem less possible. Obviously, the seizure of the uh, U.S. Embassy and taking hostage all of our diplomats, that really sort of put it in a, a permanent place of deep antagonism. There's no way to go back on it if they're taking our people hostage. It's hard to put into context for somebody who doesn't remember it what an earth-shattering event that was in I believe it was November of 1979, uh, 444 days. Yeah. U.S. Embassy staff was in captivity in their, in their own embassy um, when uh, elements of the Revolutionary Guard took over uh, the embassy. Is, is that today still the defining moment for the modern-day Iran seizing somebody else's embassy, capturing their diplomats? Well, I think for many in Iran, it is. They commemorate it as, as a triumph. I mean, for us, obviously... It's an odd uh, thing to celebrate, though. It is, and, and it's hard to recall just how extreme it was. I mean, today when we see the, the Twin Towers, you know, came down when Al-Qaeda killed 3,000 people, compared to that, it doesn't seem... Uh, it, to be in the same league. But, mm -hmm. you know, in the Cold War, even the Soviet Union didn't overrun our embassies and take our people hostage. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in some ways it was reminiscent uh, of the sort of the panicked flight from Saigon in 1975 mm -hmm. to see one of our embassies taken. And it was just a, a breach of diplomatic uh, behavior that was unthinkable at the time. Yeah. So the hostages finally are released on the day Ronald Reagan takes uh, the oath of office as president in 1981. And then we enter this you know, phase over the last four decades now of just antagonism between the United States and Iran. Uh, it has flared up from time to time, but generally it's just kind of remained in this stasis of opposition until this new wrinkle of, of nuclear weapons rears its head in our relationship. That changes things radically because now we're not just talking about different political ideologies. Now we're talking about a sworn enemy of the United States possibly possessing a nuclear weapon. Does, does that radically change over the course of when you look at that four decades, how this relationship even went lower and sank lower than it already was? It's definitely a big deal, but it's important not to underplay some of the critical events in the 80s that deepened that antagonism. If it had really been a turn back to something like normalcy after the hostage situation, perhaps things could have gotten better. But, you know, the attacks by Hezbollah in Beirut, killing hundreds of American Marines, as well as many French troops as well, multiple attacks, that was really one of the bloodiest incidents uh, in that entire decade. So it really deepened the antagonism. There are other Iranian terrorist attacks, a string of assassinations in Europe. Uh, there was some moves toward reconciliation in the 90s, some hopes for better. But then right then, we in the early 2000s, we get to the nuclear issue. They have mm -hmm. pledged not to develop nuclear weapons, but they start building these facilities. And then one of the really key turning points is in 2009, we uncover some of their secret facilities. And we see despite all of their pledges the whole time, through their teeth they'd been lying and were moving toward nuclear weapons. What's their, what's their end game right now? Because... Iran, for years, has been known as a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, they have been troublemakers in the region for quite some time. What is the ends to their means? Do they think that they are going to spurn an Islamic revolution still across the globe? Or are they simply in a mode that wherever they say the United States they are going to move to cause trouble in those regions where they No, they have definite ambitions to consolidate something like hegemony in the region that originally, you know, they had a view that they could transcend the Sunni-Shiite divide and that the Islamic revolution, the Shiite revolution in Iran could unite all 
uh, Muslims across the world. That's increasingly less likely because of the Sunni-Shia divide getting so much worse in, in really since 9-11. Well, let's talk about that because when people remember that period of time in the late 70s, early 90s, especially when the, when the hostages were held, Iran was at war with Iraq. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this, you know, thought of the enemy of my enemy is the friend. But it turned out that both of those enemies wound up being enemies of the United States. So how did the United States wind up in a position where they had two countries that ostensibly couldn't stand each other, but yet both of them became enemies of the United States? Well, there had been historic tensions between Iran and Iraq, but also it was about uh, Saddam Hussein, obviously quite a brutal leader. He was looking for an opportunity to expand his own domain, his oil assets and other things at the expense of his neighbor. And at the time, he was more in a secular vein. Um, and also, there's remember, there's the Arab-Persian tension as well, that Iran, despite being sort of so close to the Arab Middle East, is basically a Persian nation uh, with you know many minorities. And so those tensions spin out of control, and we find up sort of in this triangle where we are equally opposed to every side. We don't really have too much of an opportunity for the enemy of our enemy to be our friend. There is some moments where we're a little more forgiving for Saddam. People have often pointed out that irony that, you know, given we would later go to war against him twice. There um, was that famous picture of Donald Rumsfeld and him shaking hands at one point. Yes. Um, shouldn't be overestimated. Yeah. Shouldn't be uh, interpreted as being too close. But I'd say also the the Gulf states were more eager to support Saddam. They really feared that if Iran defeated Saddam, overran Iraq, he could be down into the Arab Gulf. When President Trump announced that the U.S. was pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement, there were a lot of people at the time who said, well, no, you can't do this because we won't have any controls on them. Tr President Trump's argument has been throughout this that they weren't abiding by it anyway. What's the truth there, and how much do we know about what they're actually up to uh, now, that, especially the, since the United States pulled out of this agreement? Well, I don't think we know nearly as much as we would like, at least in the public domain. I couldn't mm -hmm. speak to what the U.S. intelligence community knows. But one of the promises of this nuclear deal is that there will be more transparency than ever. That's what John Kerry and Barack Obama told us. In fact, we've seen a weakening of inspections that the U.N. Uh, agency, the IAEA, that does these nuclear inspections, there's a lot of limits in the deal to what they can do. So just how long they have to wait to inspect a suspicious facility. It's not, we, we were promised sort of inspections on 24-hour notice or less, instant. We didn't get that. We didn't get didn't close happen. to that. No. Yeah. Um, and one of the other problems is just that the IAEA won't even ask. So you've heard from uh, intelligence leaders in this country, we don't have evidence of Iran violating the deal. The problem is it's structured so that the, they are allowed to do things without real intrusive inspections they would have to say no to. The uh, UN inspectors haven't asked to see an Iranian military facility. Of course, where would you see evidence of illicit activity likely leading to nuclear weapons uh, in a military, military facility? Yeah. And why don't they ask? Because they're afraid Iran would say no, and that would trigger the collapse of the deal. When we look at what's going on in Syria right now, you know, the president is on the verge of pulling out U.S. troops. There has been some, you know, chatter back and forth about whether or not that's the way to go. Yeah. Um, the president, I think just in the last couple hours, tweeted about 100 percent defeat of the caliphate. But there has been, you know, speculation about whether or not ISIS is really defeated. What is the difference? Is there a difference, I should say, between 
the caliphate and ISIS. Are they one and the same? What, what, what are we talking about when we use these terms? Well, I think the way to put it perhaps is you can defeat the caliphate or dismantle the caliphate without defeating ISIS. They wanted a territorial state. They wanted a domain where they could enact their version of Islamic law in a very strict and violent manner. Isn't, isn't Iran already doing that though? Well, that's one of the places where the Sunni-Shiite tension comes into play. Mm -hmm. So believe it or not, Iran actually believes that ISIS, the Islamic State, is an American conspiracy to hurt Iran. I it's sort of hard to you know, wrap your head around that, to think that we would create an organization that was committing massacres in Europe, but it tells you something so, about where the Iranian leadership is. So connect the dots on that for folks. So when you look at ISIS, are you seeing Sunni Muslims? Yes, in, it's pretty much ISIS, unequivocal. Which is why Iran views them as a threat. Uh, yes, and because really they've been very vocal at saying that all Shiites are, are, are heretics or deserving of death. That you know, The line isn't absolute. Sometimes people get it, fall into a simplistic place. They say every Sunni must be an enemy of every Shiite. Mm -hmm. You have to remember Hamas, the group that wants to destroy Israel, is Sunni, and it receives lots of money from Iran. Iran has had other Shi uh, Sunni groups on its payroll. Well, it falls into the enemy of my enemy thing again. Yeah, so they can, and yet they Hamas's still, still enemies. goals in eliminating Israel line up with Iran's thoughts on that. Uh, quite convenient in that regard. Same Hezbollah even had some uh, touches with Al-Qaeda in the 90s. So these lines are porous. Um, but nonetheless, it, it's, it's very real. That's why we've also seen these attacks by uh, the Islamic State, by Al-Qaeda, on Iranian mm -hmm. revolutionary guards. So they do have quite a bit to fight about. Um, so as we look at what ISIS is doing in Syria right now, have they been defeated? Because it seems like their territory has shrunk. So they've been basically down to the very end of their territory, sort of near the Euphrates River in, in the far eastern reaches of Syria. Um, but the question is, is there an emerging insurgency and how bad is it? So one of the events that people noticed in this country was when several Americans were killed as part of a suicide attack uh, in the city of Manbij, which is pretty far from the border. It's in mm -hmm. an area you would have hoped would be more secure at this point. And, but it was really only one of several. We were seeing a, a string of car bombings. Moreover, that's Syria. We're also seeing that in Iraq with Iraqi security forces taking casualties, areas where ISIS insurgency is more and more able to exclude opponents. Two years ago, all of the talk seemed to be in Syria that uh, the president, Bashir al-Assad, had to go. That John Kerry at one point laid out a case for Assad having used chemical mm -hmm. weapons on his own people. You almost hear no discussion of that at all anymore. Uh, what is Assad's situation in his own country, and what is he going to be left ruling over if all of these outside forces were to leave and his country finds itself decimated after this civil war that has raged throughout his country? I think, as he suggests, he'll be ruling over a lot of rubble. Uh, half of the population has been displaced, around 5 million of them outside the country. Um, and Russia and Iran, they don't really have the money to give him to rebuild it. it. It's potentially hundreds of billions he would need and how much has been lost over the war. There's talk that investors will come in, but I think it's also likely we'll put some pretty tough sanctions on that. So does Syria wind up becoming like, say, another Lebanon that is just kind of still there, but not really fully functioning because there seems to be no you know, basis of, of getting the country back up on its feet? It's, it sounds like Syria, you know, possibly other places are in need of some sort of Marshall plan to rebuild them. 
Well, uh, if you don't have any kind of responsible leadership, uh, it won't be a Marshall Plan. I guess the Russians perhaps going to have a Stalin plan for them. Yeah. Um, but it, it's going to be sort of an Iranian and a Russian colony. Right? For the Russians, they want their bases, uh, both an air base and a naval base on the Mediterranean. Uh, I'm doesn't sorry, really the Russians. Help, it doesn't really help the people that live there, though. Uh, there's not much interest yeah. there in helping the people. When yeah. you kill half a million and have 50,000 in your torture chambers, uh, you're not too interested in the people, nor do Russia or Iran care at all. I think they believe they've killed and displaced enough that Assad and perhaps the next Assad can hold on indefinitely. I think what I'm, get, what, what I'm getting at here is that even if the shooting stops, even if the shelling stops, there's still um, heartbreaking conditions for the people that are there that are, are kind of really caught in this crossfire uh, between these you know foreign entities that have decided to use Syria as their you know personal game board. Yeah, no question. Just this week, I was talking to someone from the northeast of Syria, the area that's mainly under Kurdish control, and he was telling me about the family he has in the area under Assad's control and how getting something simple like fuel for heat at this time mm -hmm. of year is not easy. Um, I mean, there's tremendous shortages as well as the just the s also sanctions that make it more difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, everything you could imagine. And of course, the tactics of Russia, like bombing hospitals, bombing bakeries, bombing every facility you need to live. Assad has done so much to destroy that there won't be left. The president makes the point, though, and you do hear this from folks of why is it always the United States that is left to sort these things out? Why does the world always look to the United States to be the one? to go in and, and fix these problems. And it's a, it's a question that remains unanswered. And I think um, we put it to folks like you. Is it the answer you just gave? Because if we don't do it, nobody else will? Um, that is a small part of it because you know, we can't just allow chaos, which can spawn things like the Islamic State, right? So mm -hmm. uh, a point I've tried to drive home in response to this withdrawal from Syria is this is the lesson of the Obama years. He pulled out of Iraq. He didn't want that responsibility. He wanted to fulfill the campaign promise. Uh, and we th he said it was safe. He said it was stable, said it was secure. And we get the Islamic State instead inspiring massacres in this country, directly carrying out massacres in Europe. Mm -hmm. So if, if we could just truly draw a line or build a wall and, and keep that part of the world away from us, not cause problems, Perhaps. But it's also important to remember how much other people are doing in this situation. So, you know, in some ways, if I were whispering in the president's ear, I'd say what you do in Syria, don't say it's too many troops, it's time to bring them home. Say you did so much better than Obama. Does that statement that we're pulling our troops out tend to embolden opponents over there? Uh, I think in the very short term, while they're waiting for the troops to actually leave, they're biding their time and not doing anything too provocative. And then we'll see what happens once the troops are actually gone. Turkey wants to beat up on the Kurds that are in Syria. Um, Russia, Iran, and Assad, they'd love to get back all the oil. It's almost all of their oil in the area under sort of Kurdish and U.S. coalition control. So people are going to be emboldened. We, again, we saw that last time around. When we now move into 2019, as we are now six weeks in, the vice president of the United States is at a conference, as you and I are speaking right now, and he had kind of used this as another message to Europe. You need to do more. You need to get off the sidelines. The United States can't carry this water for you exclusively anymore. At long stretches in the vice president's address on this, there was silence in, in the room. Is Europe ready to take on this responsibility? Because it seems like every time the United States says that they need to, 
they throw up a lot of reasons why the United States needs to be in the driver's seat. So what I would do to answer it is sort of partition it into two parts, the Syria challenge and the Iran nuclear deal challenge. Uh, the Europe is dead set on preserving the nuclear deal. Uh, what you heard the vice president complain about was they had set up a financial channel for companies to pay for transactions with Iran without touching American banks mm -hmm. so that the sanctions wouldn't prevent them. So in effect, it's a way of getting around sanctions. It's not clear it'll be used for anything wrong, um, but it has that potential, and we really need to watch it closely. On the other hand, Syria, um, on Europe sometimes wants to do more on Syria. There are actually French and British troops mm -hmm. in that area working with us as part of the coalition. There's even been a recently floated proposal reported on by the Washington Post that if uh, France, Britain, and perhaps a few others step up and put in several hundred more troops, we will leave a small contingent behind. But it's the local Kurds who've been losing thousands of their own people to fight against ISIS. So Trump, it's unfortunate, I think, when he talks about us being the sucker, being manipulated, because our local partners have sacrificed thousands and thousands of lives, while we've only sacrificed a very small number. So as we move into this year right now, you know, we look back on when Benjamin Netanyahu went to the UN a couple of years yep. ago with that, you know, infamous bomb, painting of yep. bomb. Uh, and talked about the red line approaching. Are we over that line right now? Or are we close to it? Where, where are we with Netanyahu's prediction of two years ago? Well, so what the nuclear deal did is in the short term, it pushes Iran further away from that red line and Netanyahu's bomb because they shipped out their low enriched uranium. They don't have the sort of medium enriched uranium, obviously needed to be high enriched for a bomb. Um, but what happens is they can continue research and development of key components of centrifuges, which help you create this highly enriched uranium over time. So the sort of gaping holes in the deal in that regard means they can come out of it on the other end, eight to 10 years to 15, when all of the restrictions lift and they can really be ready to pounce. So what's going to happen is, moreover, they'll, they'll be legitimized because the deal says abide by this and you're once again a member in good standing. So the argument from myself, my colleagues has been, yes, you back away for just a few years from that danger line and then you help Iran get right up to it and you remove the constraints they're going to face once the key terms of the deal expire. It's chilling. Uh, I certainly think so. Scary thing. David Asink is a director of research for the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. And uh, we were pleased to welcome him today on the Hill. David, thank you. My pleasure. All right. We thank you for joining us from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. This is the On the Hill podcast. We'll see you next time. Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyen de los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.